You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for uh, your church and that your spirit uh, speaks to us uh, today. And Lord, that you would help us better understand what the role of tradition is uh, in hearing you speak. Uh, Lord, for uh, we want to be uh, in accordance with your will and walk in your ways. Be with Mark, send your Holy Spirit to fill him that he might speak uh, your truth this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I take it as my, my task uh, today... Let me put this down lower. Oh, thank you. Uh, to enter into the question about tradition in the articles of religion, um, and I, I guess we're somewhere along the way uh, in this series, I did want to read to you, and I, I brought this on my phone, um, the article number 20, because I will refer to this a bit, and I'm kind of going to go my own way a little on the, in this um, rather than just a strict exposition of the articles of religion, I kind of want to use the articles as a, as, a, as a buoy, as a sort of springboard into discussion about the role of Scripture and tradition. But let me, let me read you Article 20. It has one of my favorite turns of phrases in the 39 Articles of Religion. I, I love this phrase. Now, the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. That's a pretty robust ecclesiology there, doctrine of the church. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. And this is the part that I like. I use this with my students at Beeson. Uh, Neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. I like that. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, I'm going to come back to that phrase as well, so keep that somewhere in some cerebral fold. Although the church be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. Uh, So there's a couple phrases there that I want you to think about. Number one, not treating and reading the scriptures so that one place is found to be repugnant to another. I should say just as an aside, that's the easy part of reading the Bible, especially with with the rise of modern criticism in in the period of modernity. It's easy to find the Bible repugnant to each other. That's not the hard task. The hard task is thinking about the diverse voices of the Bible as they relate to the singular word of God. That's, That's the hard work. I mean, I think that's the challenge that we're getting here from this article of religion. So, number one, you don't read one part of the Bible as repugnant to another. And then number two, what is the definition of the church, at least according to this um, article of religion? Namely, the church is a witness and a keeper of holy writ of of the Bible, of Scripture. So, let let me introduce this to you in a way. I don't know if this is going to be helpful or not. And I'm nervous about this lesson, to be honest with you. There There are dragons and there are... Um, dangerous turns to be taken with this particular discussion right here on tradition in the Bible. Yeah, that's why the D is on the front row. Um, so, so with that said, let me give you two sort of antipodal or probably opposite views on the role of tradition. Um, 
The first one is from a movie that I think, or at least a musical, that I think can be a, a way of viewing the whole of life. Um, I think there are two of these in, in, in my life that I think become a kind of uh, lens for understanding culture in the world. Number one is The Godfather, but we won't go into that one. Uh, and then number two is Fiddler on the Roof. I watch it regularly, love it. Um, and the opening scene, uh, Raptavia, uh, you need to go through the father to the son, uh, down to the, to, the, to the wife and the daughters. And, and he goes through this whole opening montage. You remember the song? What's it, what is it called? Tradition. I, I, I would sing it for you, but it would get awkward. Um, tradition, tradition. And then there's, and the, he has these sort of recitatives throughout this opening line. And he starts talking about various traditions that they have. You don't mix this milk with that milk. And then he stops and he says, and why do we do this? And what did you remember what Raptavia says? I don't know why. It's just tradition, right? That's one particular view of tradition, a kind of valuation of tradition for tradition's sake without any recognition of why we're doing what we're doing, number one. The opposite extreme of that was a conversation that I had this week uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, and I, I, I made a kind of pilgrimage back to Bob Jones University, bizarre, actually. So I'm sitting there with one of the executive vice presidents of the school who's one of my teachers, and we're having a great conversation. And, and there's the, another buddy of mine from my undergrad days is sitting there, and, and now he's the director of enrollment, and, and, and we, we go way back. And, and, and this is what my buddy said to me, who I haven't seen now in over a decade. He said, I'm highly suspicious of the institutionalization of Christianity, period. That's okay. Tell me more about that, Bobby. He says, it's just been my experience that whenever the church gets involved in anything, it messes it up. And, and there's a part of me that goes, I, I get what you're saying, right? The, the, the church messes it up. It, it, it's, uh, it, it, it causes things to go off the tracks. So all I want to know, this is what my friend was saying, all I want to know is what do you think the Bible says? In other words, I'm reading the Bible in a way that needs to be in some sense detached from my place in the church and from my place in time. I just want to know um, what the Bible has to say. It's a, what I call is a kind of me, Jesus, and the Bible approach to Christianity. Institutions are problematic. Locations in the life of the church are problematic. They, they obfuscate. They do not clarify. They become hurdles to jump over so that it becomes a kind of immediate access between me and Jesus and the Bible left in my kind of individual sphere. That would be a kind of anti-tradition view. And by the way, that has a denominational expression that's pretty vibrant, I would say, um, in the Appalachian area going down from Kentucky down into Tennessee and even into Alabama through Church of Christ. No creed, but Jesus. Um, I don't want to, it, this, that whole Nicene thing we did in church today, dump it, because that's not the Bible. The Apostles' Creed, get rid of it. Uh, the Creed of Chalcedon that gives us an understanding of the relationship between the human and the divine nature of Jesus in a singular subject, dump it. That's not in the Bible. No creeds, but Jesus in the Bible. So those are the kinds of extremes that I think we have. Tradition for tradition's sake, and then a kind of anti-tradition view that I mean, I don't, again, I don't want to get, kind of get too philosophical on you here, but it becomes platonic in the sense that we can detach ourselves from our bodies and our lived experiences. Here's the problem with that one view, though. I'll just say this as an aside, and then we'll move on, because I've got a ton to say. Now, here's the problem with that view. The problem, I think, on one level is that in an effort for my friend, for example, to want to make objective claims about the Bible, 
In other words, it's just me reading my Bible, what does it say? Detached from my place and time and my particular ecclesial identity. The effort to do that ends up bringing in a kind of tacit, backhanded subjectivity that doesn't take into account that I cannot escape myself and my experiences and my place when I'm reading the Bible and I'm locked in that particular conversation where I'm bringing myself to the Bible to be scrutinized by it, but I can't escape my body in that process. So that's, that's part, of, part of the issue here, okay? So what do we mean by a tradition? Okay, I'm going to come back to this and circle back and back. Um, but let me give you a distinction from a theologian that I think is actually rather important. His name is Heiko uh, Obermann. Um, Heiko Obermann, who probably wrote, by the way, one of the most important books on, on Martin Luther in the last uh, 50 years. But anyway, Heiko Obermann gives us a distinction between two different kinds of tradition. And I think these are very important because it's going to kind of let us lean into this understanding of the relationship between tradition um, and, uh, and the scriptures. Here's tradition number one, and it's the tradition, understanding of tradition that I think is presented within our articles of religion and our particular ecclesial location. Here's tradition one, according to Obermann's definition. It's a history of the obedient interpretation of Scripture within the church. Okay, So it's a history of obedient interpretation of Scripture within uh, the church. Again, back to Article 20. Of the, of, the, uh, of the Articles of Religion. Number one, we cannot um, ordain that, says Article 20, which is contrary to Scripture. That's outside of the purview of the life of the church or any ecclesial body to ordain and authorize that which is outside the purview and the authority or is contrary or repugnant to the Bible. That's outside of the, the purview and the authority structure of the life of the church. And number two in the Article of Religion How might we define the church? I'm going to come back to this again and again. As a witness and keeper of holy scripture. So that's tradition number one. Um, If I can put it this way, and I I can can hear Dr. George, the dean at the Divinity School, uh, saying that I just heard him say it three or four weeks ago. Um, I, I, I teach church history, he says, to help young men and women know that their grandmother wasn't the first one to read the Bible. Um, people have been reading the Bible for a very long time. And the fact that people have been reading the Bible and seeking to order their thoughts and prayers toward the authority of the Bible, um, that's a positive view of tradition. In other words, we're entering into that stream of reception of the Bible, seeking to order our thoughts and our lives and our prayers in a similar way um, in light of the authority of Holy Scripture. So that's tradition number one. But here's tradition number two, tradition number two, according to Pelican. Tradition is, on this view, embedded in Scripture, but overflowing in extra-scriptural apostolic tradition handed down by apostolic succession. Can I read that one more time? Because that was a mouthful. Tradition as embedded in the Scripture. So the Scripture is still important here. But now the Scriptures begin to kind of overflow. And the metaphors that would be used in this account of tradition would be organic Metaphors. There's a kind of organic overflow between the scriptures themselves and the reception of the scriptures and their teaching in a stream of apostolic tradition that's handed down by apostolic succession. So, so how, how, how's the Bible viewed in this account of tradition? It's a kind of starter gun, right, that gets us out of the gate and brings us into a living stream 
of tradition and reception. And what ends up happening with this particular kind of tradition is that tradition and scripture then begin to bleed into each other in such a way as to, in effect, lose their distinction. Now, there's a lot of overlap between this particular view of tradition, namely tradition two, um, and a Jewish or sort of a, a Judaistic understanding of the Old Testament's authority in the life of the synagogue. Um, how, is the, how is the Old Testament received in the synagogue? The written law and the oral law or the oral teaching on that law are viewed as so linked and intertwined that they cannot be separated the one uh, from the other. Um, for example, if you were to go into the library at Samford or some other library and pull off a copy of the Babylonian Talmud, and you opened it up, there you would have the Talmud in Hebrew right in the middle of the page, and outside of the Talmud would be the Midrashim or the various explanations and expositions of what's going on there, and you cannot detach the one from the other. They begin to bleed into each other, Scripture and tradition do. All right, so two accounts of tradition. Tradition number one, an appreciative understanding that the church from its inception has sought to order its thought and life according to the Bible and an appreciation that the Holy Spirit has been at work from the church's inception, bringing people into conformity with the apostolic deposit in the gospel. And then there's tradition number two that sees the reception of the Bible and the scriptures themselves as on a kind of equal plane of mutual reciprocity and reception. Okay, that, that's the two accounts. So I want, I want to keep that before you because I think these distinctions are really important because we want to avoid... Um, the rocks that can be crashed on on either side, the kind of fiddler on the roof rock. Why do we do it? Because we do it. That's a rock that one can crash on. And I think another rock that we can crash on is a kind of radical individualism within the church that sees, really, at the end of the day, my Christianity is an expression of me, Jesus, and my Bible alone. Let me give you one more definition. I'm borrowing this from Yaroslav Pelikan. Um, he makes a distinction between tradition and traditionalism. I like this. I think it's actually quite helpful. And I'm just going to throw this stuff at you. And if we have time for Q&A, maybe we can bat it around. Here's, here's Pelican's definition of tradition. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Right? It's a recognition that the faith has been passed on and it can be passed on from one generation to the next as a kind of article or a kind of confession of what we believe to be true about God and the world. Um, so that's the living faith of the dead. And this is how Pelican uh, defines traditionalism. Right, so he makes a distinction. Tradition, the living faith of, of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Right. Um, I think that's a kind of helpful distinction. Why, that, that's, that's Raptavia and filler on the Roof. Why do we do that? Well, it's just because we do that. Um, I, I had somebody pretty high in the ecclesiastical order in this area uh, one time uh, tell me, um, a lot of times within our particular church, we do things just because that's how we do it, right? And I think that's a, there, there's dangers here about a kind of traditionalism that becomes the dead faith of the living rather than uh, the living faith of the dead. Now, if I'm sitting where you are, listening to me yak up here, I would be saying, um, that's all great. These are helpful distinctions, maybe. Um, but what does the Bible have to say about this? I'd want to know what the Bible has to say. So let's talk a little bit about that. What does the Bible have to say about a tradition? A lot, I think. It says a lot about tradition. 
I'm just going to throw some things at you here. Again, not necessarily in an ordered way, but I want to throw some things at you and see what sticks on the wall. Number one, tradition is central to the process of how the Bible actually comes to be. And I don't know if you've thought about that, but I want you to think on this a little bit. Tradition is central to the process of the Bible's coming to be. I'm going to give you some proof text. All right, here's one. Deuteronomy 6, pass these things on to your children. Well, when do you do that? When you're walking along the way. This is my Eugene Peterson translation on this. When you're driving in the car. Right? There, there's no cars back then. Uh, wherever, wherever you happen to be, you're in a constant mode of handing over what you have been taught uh, to the next generation. That's, that's integral to the Old Testament's understanding of the living dynamic of Torah, of the law. The law is taught and passed on from generation to generation to generation. Here's another example. The attributes of God that we find in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. I, I, this is, I'm careful about identifying one particular place of the Old Testament as the center of the Old Testament. But if there is such a place, it might be right here. Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is God giving an exposition of his own name. Who are you, God? Well, I am merciful I'm gracious. I show compassion and kindness to the thousandth generation. Uh, the Jewish reception of this text identifies these as the 13 attributes of God. And God, who are you? What does your name mean? Well, God reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 34 in those attributes. And what's the kind of final result? God is merciful primarily and severe. He's not to be trifled with. He's merciful and he's severe. When you get into the minor prophets, and you start with Hosea, and you move all the way to Malachi, what you find are the minor prophets listening to those attributes from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and allowing them to make their way through the minor prophets like, like a red thread. A Joel chapter 2, a Jonah chapter 4, Micah chapter 7, Nahum chapter 1. All the way through the minor prophets, we see what? The tradition of the Medot those attributes of God are being used now by the prophets to answer the very difficult question that the prophets are bringing before the people of God, namely, God, who are you? And number two, why are horrible things happening? Those questions. And how do they adjudicate that problem? They adjudicate it by the biblical traditions of themselves. Can I give you some more? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. Here's the prophet Isaiah saying, to his group of disciples, hey, write this down for a future generation. This current generation, they can't get it. Their ears are deafened and their eyes are blinded. But write this down because there's a future generation that's awaiting to hear this word. I, I use that, by the way. Anytime I teach Isaiah in any small Bible study or in a class, I said, do you realize that the prophet himself anticipated what we would be doing? sitting here thousands of years later, listening to his words because we have been, by God's Spirit and his grace, given the ears to hear it? How about this, Isaiah chapter 40? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Um, I think this is another fascinating aspect of Isaiah. After chapter 39, there is not a prophetic name mentioned for the rest of the book. And what's central to that, I think? is the fact that from Isaiah chapter 4 and following, the prophet wants you to know without any reservation or shadow of doubt 
that the central dramatic figure of the prophetic book is the word of the Lord himself, itself. Prophets come and go. They're just like flesh. Isaiah pushing up daisies. He's gone somewhere. Actually, I think from tradition he was cut in half in the middle of a tree by Manasseh's men. I hear that's a bad way to go. Um, but Isaiah, he's gone, right? But the word of the Lord stands forever. You cannot read the Psalms without the Psalms being embedded with tradition. Remember what God did in the past so that you can, in your moment of crisis right now, have hope that he'll do it again in the future. That's that dynamic of tradition that's built into the Bible's own, if I can use sort of inflated term, its own compositional history. How about the New Testament? Well, you know this stuff. I mean, Jesus on the road to Emmaus and then in the room with the disciples. How does Jesus give an account of himself? He does so on the basis of the scriptures themselves. He's giving them a kind of account of tradition. I want you to understand who I am on the basis of, of the word. Of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what does Paul say? I hand over to you that which I have received. That's a great definition, a proper definition of tradition. I'm handing over to you that which I have received. And what is that, Paul? It's the legacy of the gospel. Christ died and he raised again. How do we know this, Paul? Um, here's like my favorite Greek phrase, katatas graphos, according to the scriptures. That's how we know. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 says, find faithful men and teach them so that they too can pass on that which you have, which you have learned. Okay, so we see a very positive account of tradition within the Bible and the Bible's own coming to be. But guess what? There's warnings too in the Bible. I mean, think about Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees. Those weren't happy meetings, right? Um, One of my first liturgical experiences in Scotland, I'll never forget this. Um, You know, I I had kind of grown up in a free church world and had ministered in a free church world, and now I'm in this liturgical lectionary setting, and, you know, the the, the lector at the end of the reading says, this is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks to God. I can remember the first reading that I heard, or, or the second, um, was an account in the gospel between Jesus and, and the Pharisees. And he's like, you, you vile brood of vipers, you, you whitewashed sepulchers just filled with dead men's bones. I mean, it was, it was horrible. And then the lectors paused and said, this is the word of the Lord. And we all said, thanks be to God. I'm kind of like, I guess. I mean, that's kind of hard stuff, right? So you know that Jesus raises critical questions about the improper use of tradition an abusive understanding of tradition. Here's another text that is very easy to flit past in the Old Testament, but it's one that I think is filled with at least some kind of provocation to thinking about the way that tradition can go bad, the way that it can turn into raptavia. It's 2 Kings uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 4. What happens in 2 Kings 18, 4? Hezekiah, well, I'm going to read it to you so that you know this is actually coming from the Bible. 2 Kings verse chapter 18, Hezekiah comes onto the throne. He's described in the ways in which the whole Deuteronomistic history describes those who are faithful to God and, and their kingly role. He tore down the high places. He did away with idolatrous practices. And listen to this. this is, I, I've always been stunned by this. Uh, verse 4, he removed the high places, the bemote, um, and he broke the pillars sort of Asherah poles, phallic symbols, and that's all kind of nasty, actually. Uh, cut down the Asherah, 
He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Did you hear that? He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings unto it, and they called it the Nehushtan. Uh, uh, now, you, this, we're talking about the bronze serpent here. The very instrument that God used in a particular moment in redemptive history to redeem his people and to save them. In fact, think John chapter 3. That's the type, the figure that John uses to make a link between the Old Testament and the New Testament as the, as the bronze serpent was lifted in the wilderness. Even to so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's a link between the bronze serpent and Jesus Christ on the level of a shared reality. What the bronze serpent affected in the book of Exodus and Numbers and what Jesus is going to affect when he's raised up, there is a link here. There's a sharing of some reality in God's divine redemptive purposes. So the bronze serpent, very important, and it had become an object of idolatry. That which was good in time had become that which was now worshipped. And the traditional train had gone off the track. And what did Hezekiah do? I, mean, I just can't imagine the courage of this, actually. The courage was he destroyed Moses' bronze serpent because it was being abused as a talisman within the life of God's people. And God said no to that. So all to say, the Bible gives us a very positive view of tradition, and it also gives us bona fide warnings about tradition as well. Okay? So there's some distinctions here that I want to talk about. Oh, my time's going to run, but here we go. No questions, sorry. Um, so here, here's, here's a couple of points. Number one, there is an understanding in the Bible of the prophetic and apostolic faith as that which can be handed down through the generations. But there's a crucial distinction. And this is a distinction, by the way, that divides scholars and divides certain ecclesial thinkers to this day. But you're going to know where I'm going to land on this. There is a tradition-building process that's near the center of the Bible's own coming to be. The Bible's listening to itself in its own traditions as it builds itself toward the final form of the canon that we carry around between our leather covers. But once that process has been completed, namely the canon itself, then a distinction exists between Scripture as a canon, an authority. The technical term of the Reformers is the norman normans non normata. Now, it's the norm, it's the authority by which all other authorities are judged. A distinction exists between the Scripture as canon and the ecclesiastical or churchly reading and reception of it. That's crucial. Once the Bible comes to be and achieves the stability that it achieves in the canon, which itself is a product of God's providential interaction with the church itself, but once that happens, now a distinction exists between the Scriptures as the authority and the church's hearing and receiving of it. Can I make one final thing and then we'll, we'll, we'll see. The last thing I wanted to say, third, third point. If you're following points, this is third. Um, uh, ecclesiology and pneumatology. You know, people go to seminary so they can say big words like that at social gatherings and make people feel repugnant toward them, I guess. Um, let, let me give you two definitions, one of church and then one of the spirit. Here's the definition of the church. 
a reduced definition. This should be much bigger, but, but here, here's the definition. The church is that social and historical location of the Holy Spirit's teaching office. Let's say that again. The church is the social and historical location of the Holy Spirit's teaching office. Here's another way of understanding that. The church is the school of Jesus Christ. Remember the definition of the church in Article 20? Keepers of holy writ. Witnesses to holy writ. The church is the school of Jesus Christ. We cannot make progress in knowledge or understanding of the faith apart from tradition. We cannot, nor should we seek to escape it. The church is the concrete public sphere of God's teaching. And that's the basis of a positive valuation of tradition, of tradition one. How has the church, from its inception, wrestled with God's word? So can I give you an example of this? And I think it's, I, I didn't know this morning would be a communion service, but I kind of had a 50-50 chance, I guess. Um, so we, we, we quoted the Nicene Creed in, in the church this morning. Um, and Article 21, by the way, the Articles of Religi- Religion, affirms that as a component of our ecclesial identity. Well, what's going on in Nicaea? What, what's go- that creed that we say all the time that uses words that are, by the way, flooded with extra-biblical words of the same substance with the Father. We we, we use that language all the time around here. The the Greek term is homoousios, light of light, very God of very God. And and here's the turn of phrase that, I mean, blood was spilt over this one, begotten but not made, eternally generated but not created. I mean, these are terms that we use, and I think in a very important way, all the time uh, within within our church, and that's, that's something that's rooted in a fourth-century debate about God the Father and his relationship to the Son and the Spirit. How do we speak about God? Well, this is what is often forgotten in that. What's forgotten in that, and when you get into these fathers, and by the way, I'm just reminded, uh, being with Ashley Knoll a few weeks ago, uh, reading some over the past few weeks, I'm just reminded how, how indebted uh, Cranmer himself was to reading and wrestling with the fathers. It mattered to these magisterial reformers, yes, the Bible as the authority, but number two, we need to wrestle with the best of the tradition itself. What do the fathers have to say about this? And so when you get into this, this particular understanding in the fourth century, what are these fathers doing? Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, the great theologian Gregory of Nazianzus, what are they doing? They are wrestling with the Bible. That's often forgotten. I mean, I tell my students at BC, they say, okay, I, I, I assign you a paper on the Trinity. And you've got to write a paper arguing from the Bible that God the Father and God the Son are co-equal in substance and yet distinct in person. Go. Do it. Right. How many of them by nature, or how many of you, or even myself, by nature would go to Proverbs chapter 8, wrestling there with whether or not divine wisdom is a created entity, off the basis of a Hebrew term, kinah, or whether or not um, the divine wisdom itself is part of the divine identity and inseparable from it. Both Athanasius, who was on the right side of the angels, and Arius, who wasn't, both of them assumed that the Logos was related to wisdom in some way that required them to wrestle with that text. So what we often forget, I think, is that creed that we said this morning, 
uh, that fourth century Nicene Constantinopolitan creed that we, we say all the time itself is born out of the church's wrestling with the Bible. And not just one part of the Bible, but all of the Bible. Um, and this is a very important fact. So, so what ends up happening? What ends up happening in this wrestling is we need to make a distinction between talking about God and his being and talking about God and his relation. And you say, oh, my goodness, all these distinctions make me want to go take a nap. Me too, right? I get that. But what, what drives this, what's driving Athanasius, what's driving Gregory and the Cappadocians is this instinct. We have to wrestle with all of the Bible and all of its claims about God. And that creed that we say, which is fraught and loaded with theological substance, is the product of the early church's wrestling with the Bible. So, that's the church, the social and historical location of the Holy Spirit's teaching office. Here's, Here's the definition of the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? John chapter 16. Jesus says, I'm going to send him, and what's he going to do? He's going to remind you of everything that I said and its importance. The Holy Spirit is the teacher in Christ's church. So here's another positive view of tradition. Tradition can be understood positively as a fruit of the Spirit's work in the life of the church. The Spirit abides in and with apostolic teaching through time. But here's another important thing. If you haven't had enough distinctions, here's one more. The Spirit's teaching life is distinct from, but in relation to the church. And this is where I think we're Protestants and where the articles of religion land on this. The Holy Spirit is involved in the teaching life of the church, but not collapsed with the teaching life of the church. So a few final, I'm landing the plane. Here's the plane, we're coming in. Scripture produces tradition, and tradition serves the Scriptures. Say that one more time. Scripture produces tradition. Why? Because the church's long and noble history is a history of wrestling with the Bible and what the Bible has to say about God and churchly practice. And yet tradition serves, and that's a crucial metaphor that's being used. Tradition is in a servant's role to the Scriptures. And what is tradition? It's also the product of the church's sanctified reason. Yet our reason, our cognitive faculties, we can get it wrong. We're fallen. And this is, I think, the danger of Rattavia's approach to tradition. We do it that way just because we've always done it. And the recognition that I think we we get from from the magisterial reformers in a way that I think is very important is an understanding that the church can get it wrong and needs to be reformable again by the standards of what gives us our being in the first place. I don't know if you're thinking about it this way. The church did not give birth to the Word of God. The Word of God gives birth to the church. Um, One of the the, the phrases that I heard from John Webster, I'm going to read him a quote of his, and then then I'll be done. I, I found this extremely helpful. This is how how, how Webster relates Scripture and tradition. Scripture is the speaking voice of God. It's the authority. And tradition is the hearing ear of the church, where the church has sought to listen and order its life and its thoughts and its worship toward that speaking voice. Yet, 
The church's ear is a fallible instrument. That's crucial. Always reformable, always reprovable by the ongoing life of the Scripture and the life of the church. Um, this is, I, I say this to my students, say it to you all, because you know, I, I believe in the priesthood of all believers on these matters. We're all called to be students of God's Word. Um, the life of studying God's Word and seeking to order our life according to it is an activity that never ceases in the life of the church. In a hun- and this is a humbling thing. In a hundred years, if the Lord tarries, I will be pushing up daisies. I'll be gone. And no one will remember who I am, right? I hope, hope not to be Debbie Downer this morning, but they're not going to remember you either. Um, I mean, we're going to be gone. Uh, but a hundred years from now, there's going to be a group of people who are going to be in a small Bible study or in the church, or they're going to be in a seminary class, or going to be wherever, in a village in Africa, and they're going to be seeking to order their thoughts and their lives according to God's word. And they need to do it then, and a hundred years after that, and a hundred years after that. Why? Because the scriptures are alive and dynamic making Jesus present to us by the power of the Spirit as the Spirit teaches us in the church. Yet, at the same time, we cannot detach ourselves from our place in the church and our location in it that gives us helpful guides and aids to come in, in coming to terms with what the Bible actually has to say. Okay? That's it. We don't have time, I don't think. I guess we do. I, I will ask a question. Okay. okay. Uh, just your comment. You know, we're going to spend some time walking through the article as we walk through the articles yeah. on on what the church is, uh, yeah. how it's defined, and you've alluded to that today. But it seems that the reformers in England uh, were understanding what we would be talking about as well, where they said, the ch- look, the church has the power to decree rites or ceremonies. That is, right. when we talk about tradition, we almost talk about it in terms of ordering our life together in our Sunday gatherings. And they said, look, that, that's not really what we're talking about when it comes to, uh, I mean, it's part of tradition, uh, but it seems to me that, that it's actually in our day and age been reversed, at least in our tradition, where we would now say the church hath power uh, to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written and to expound things uh, one over the other in the scriptures. Uh, but it is not lawful for the church to decree rites or ceremonies, that tradition has almost fallen wholly on the side of of what, uh, what we do. And so how do we, um, how do we make that distinction between tradition and traditionalism? And, and how do we place ourselves under the authority of God's word yeah. to order our life as Christians, whether that be Sunday mornings or elsewhere? And, and, and again, I have to enter into this carefully. The, this, that was the live fire debate, I guess, between the Puritans um, and those who remained within the Church of England in the 17th century and beyond. The, the, the key, and, and this is the, the nature of any confession of faith. Um, so, for example, I know the Westminster Confession of Faith pretty well. That's part of my training. There's a line in the Westminster Confession of Faith that says about worship and ordering of our lives, um, that we order it all according to Scripture or that which is by necessary consequence of it. That little aside has created an enormous amount of division and controversy within the life of the sort of Presbyterian world. The, I think the line that has created probably the most division within the Anglican, Anglican tradition is, what does it mean for our worship not to be repugnant to the Word of God? That, that, that's the question I think is asked. And, of course, in the 17th century and then the 18th, the, the, these, these were issues of, like, kneeling at the bench and wedding rings. And so the, those became 
really live issues. And I think this is a distinction between, say, a, a, a reformational Presbyterian view and an Anglican view. A reformation sort of Presbyterian view takes what's called the regulative principle. In other words, you only do in worship what God tells you to do. Whereas I think a kind of Lutheran slash Anglican approach is you can do in worship what's ordered and instituted by um, ecclesial, um, the ecclesial authorities as long as it's not repugnant to it. And then that, again, is not self-interpreting. So I think that's the live debate that we enter into. And, I, and my hunch is that those who argue vociferously for tradition in a more kind of Catholic sense today aren't, well, this maybe isn't fair, and I'd love to be pushed back on this, but aren't as sensitive to the wrestling with what constitutes something that's repugnant. And I think that's the kind of, that, at least as I read these articles of religion, we're left with that as a challenge. And I didn't even get to Article 34, but Article 34 talks about a lot of flexibility when it comes to liturgical ordering in the life of the church. Now, you want to get a giggle? Uh, read, um, I, was, I, I was reading it um, th- this morning, Gerald Bray's comments um, and his exposition of the 39 articles on Article 34. Um, uh, find the word annoying in there and get a giggle. I mean, if you know Gerald Bray, can, the, the point is the church... Um, can order itself according to certain ways, but it's, there's a lot of flexibility in different expressions of that, whether you're in different continents or different places, even an understanding of episcopacy in the 17th century and the, and the 16th century. Um, it would have been understood that those who weren't necessarily ordained in episcopal orders could be received in the life of the church and minister within that frame. That's, that's framed within our articles of religion. That, that's, that's not a popular view post-19th century today, I imagine. Um, so I think these are live things that we have to sort of wrestle with, but the key wrestling is what constitutes something that's repugnant to God's word. That's what we wrestle with. Okay, blessings. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.